But with yep. new developers, new coders, new marketers, even just new generations playing games, I think that's inevitably going to change as well in the next couple of years too. And it's something like, oh, you know, we have to give them some however many lines of source code. Side quest accepted. I think now really any anything could be on Steam. Do you think that's uh, a good thing? Do you think it's a good thing that you have people have so much access to release all these games nowadays as opposed to, you know, it was a little bit harder, a little bit more challenging? I think if there was a vision in the mm. in the space to uh, to mm. democratize game making and release, um, I think certainly we are there more so than ever. But I think it does make discoverability harder, a lot yeah. harder. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's maybe more of a chance for, you know, indeed gem to fall through the cracks. It's not like, you know, that wasn't the case before, um, but I think just, you know, in the deluge of content, there's probably a higher probability of things being missed. Yeah, I think that it is pushing the developers to have more, have more of a marketing mindset. That's um, true. You got like 50 yeah. games a day getting released nowadays, so it's a little bit different, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think marketing is like completely mandatory nowadays? You can't go without it? Somebody just catches a break, they get their game out there, maybe it's Steam yeah. Fest, maybe something else, and they just explode with wish lists. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get those transferred into buys, but it still means they get eyes on their product. So yeah. do you think like it's just absolutely mandatory or is it kind of, you know, it comes in Ways, yeah. that sort of thing i think the way i look at marketing it is a lot of different layers or there's a lot of different aspects to marketing now you know first of all i think we definitely think more about marketing and more about our audience um at the very beginning of de- development mm-hmm. uh, at least for us anyway i can't speak to to everybody or, or anybody else but i think for us uh we definitely think about marketing at the onset of development when we mm-hmm. first embark on a project and in fact we will jump on a project and pursue a project mm-hmm. in part because we think that there is an audience fit there is a you know it it belongs in a large enough of a of a segment or you know of, of a genre you know certainly that that's a factor and i think in the very beginning we will think about you know, how the game will be played by our players and potentially how influencers will get the game and how they will play the game and enjoy the game and, and how they will actually, I guess, broadcast the content. Do we think more about marketing in design? Yes, we do. And so some, some like in our previous game, Ember, we do try to create moments where we know it will be conducive to, to influencers, whether it's video or on, on stream and, and whatnot. So we do try to create those moments. So that, that's one aspect of something that we think about. And then we definitely think about sort of more the asset creation and collateral aspect. You know, it's like, okay, how do the screenshots look? How do the videos look? What did the description say? I think going through the analysis of how people generally consume this information on uh, on Steam and to be able to write description that is concise enough that is easy mm-hmm. to read that you know hits our selling points you know right off the bat and then you get to kind of the, the external marketing which is you know social media you know press PR influencer outreach and, and whatnot this is kind of where publishers can add value which is mm-hmm. that you know definitely take just kind of the repetitive day-to-day management type of work mm-hmm. off of us um, so, you know, right now our publisher is managing our social media accounts, um, you yeah. know, posting content. Um, you know, we'll definitely feed them content. So we'll, we'll do a lot of uh, mm-hmm. some of the content creation, but, you know, they, they do a lot of the, the heavy lifting into just the posting, which is, 
you know, kind of great. There isn't necessarily a, a set formula for us. So, mm. you know, we had, we had posts that trend, uh, you know, whether it's for uh, Wellmender or for, you know, Ember or Guns, Guns of Icarus. Um, you know, we have, you know, had content that trends, that, that trended, but I can't pretend that I am a, you know, social media expert. So I think, you know, it's kind of fun to experiment a lot of times. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you know, I create this piece of content that I think will be cool, you know, put up there and see if it'll, it'll trend or not. You started right at the gate with influencers, your first game way back. I mean, in 2011, you guys were going for it, which is interesting because as far as I'm aware, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Twitch started in 2011, right? And it Discord was, wasn't yeah. even a thing yet. Yeah, it wasn't much of a thing. Predominantly, that's yeah, very, very, very early mm -hmm. Twitch days. Predominantly, you know, still like, you know, YouTube's world. Yeah. I about to say it was like YouTube's heyday in like 2011. Cause yeah. I think they started what? Oh, yeah, nine, sure. somewhere around there. And yeah, then they sure. like hit, they hit their trend in like 2010 or 11. They just exploded. Yeah. That was a time where, um, like total biscuit, for example, that, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of guns and, you know, got to know them, you know, which is amazing. But, mm -hmm. you know, Total Biscuit at the time, you know, if he recommended something, people actually check it out. You know, there was a kind of a more serious side of like, you know, game critique and game, mm -hmm. um, you know, color review, you know, his, you know, his, a series like you know WTF is you know whatever game it's mm -hmm. still I think it's that that was amazing right because essentially he would do these like one hour deep dives into you know exploring the game mechanics and you know yeah. the goods and bads of his experience and in, in, you know with a game and people will actually watch it and be absorbed by it and actually go out and based on his recognition go on buy the game or not and that I feel like that is effect. kind of not that that's definitely not as prevalent anymore I think people you know watch influencers more for entertainment and yeah. it's more about them um it's less about the game yeah so, the yeah. whole youtuber personality thing yeah. yeah it is interesting because i've talked to a couple different developers about this like how much they think influencers ultimately impact their game sales right and the success yeah. of their game and like influencers are very positive always when you get the eyes on your product yeah. i had um I, I talked to the guy who made sucker for love and he was saying how Markiplier had played his game and yeah. like right around the time he was at uh, an event of some kind and it was like exploding because of Markiplier playing the game or whatever and a bunch of people were coming up to him they were like wow you know this is so cool and they were getting merch from him and stuff taking pictures he was like yeah so if you tried the game and they're like not yet but you know we're gonna try it soon and he was like oh okay so like it's I don't know it, yeah. it's an interesting dynamic right and I don't I don't know where to place it nowadays versus like you know it had a bit a bigger impact at that point yeah I think so I mean I think in the past when we first started getting YouTube coverage um, mm -hmm. in the Guns Vigorous days, if, if there are big influencers or a group of influ influencers or big YouTubers who play the game, we would see significant uptick in sales, um, like yeah. really significant uh, uptick in sales, especially if it's like during some Steam deal uh, mm -hmm. period. But yeah, over time, that's you know not really happening anymore. I think also just because the viewer YouTuber dynamic, I think has mm -hmm. shifted a bit as well. And it's I think a new just generation. Like, yeah, I mean, in, in I think if you look at some of the some people's subscriber base and viewership, mm -hmm. there's definitely kind of a 
drop off, I would say. That's just based on my expedition. I'm, you know, obviously not, you know, a big YouTuber, but, mm-hmm. you know, seen, you know, talked to a few YouTubers, like kind of, I guess, when YouTube is changing their, you know, algorithm or their um, kind of advertising model. They had like that big some format back, change, yep. Yeah, they, they were definitely not getting as much, like, you know, return um, mm-hmm. viewership as well. So, but they're so big at this point and they're leaning into like YouTube gaming now, which is like, you know, the mm-hmm. live aspect of it. They're trying to, you know, yeah. kind of lean into that Twitch atmosphere and, you know, YouTube is expanding and changing to compete with things like TikTok and, you know, it's a different platform, definitely. And what yeah. that means in the next five to 10 years, I really, I'm not sure. Things like Twitter, which I use predominantly to find and, you know, talk to developers and, you know, talk to the market and look at different gaming things. Twitter, just such a different animal nowadays. And I mean, it's, it's a different name now. It's X, right? And it's going to change into the this like all-inclusive platform that does all these different things and it's like a lot of developers have that question of like okay then what's next for us what do we do where does that leave us like the blue check mark stuff like that it's just social media is very very different yeah it is um certainly i mean i think the way we look at it now is just that with youtube the way we look at it is just more Mm. you know organic impression ads almost we're not going to be expecting just Oh, if there's a uh, some big YouTuber do a YouTube video and get a bunch of views, we're not really expecting to see like a big bump in you know sales or people buying the game. But you know, hopefully over time, if there are enough like YouTubers playing the game, um, you know, people will just remember and yeah. the game is on you know some deal. Then people will be like, oh yeah, I remember that game mm-hmm. and I'll check it out. So let's circle back for a second here. So you started this development journey about a decade ago at this point. The developer tools available, right? They've changed over time. There's more engines. I mean, the way you approach development is a little bit different nowadays. It's a little more accessible, right? Talk to me about how you approach development on that side of things, on the technical side of things now versus then. Talk to me about how you look at your projects now versus then. I think... Over time, Unity has definitely, they definitely have supported a lot more platforms. So just in, ter- just in terms of making builds, I've certainly gotten like way easier. I mean, obviously the engine's gotten way more robust um, and there's more of an ecosystem that kind of um, formed around like Unity's asset store, for example. So, you yeah. know, people, you know, even for us to wrap up, like certainly there are assets available mm. um, in the asset store and there are different, you know, third-party tools available in, in the asset store that it, it just, it certainly makes development easier for example with um multiplayer just because we do you know player hosted setup we use this third-party multiplayer server solution called photon yeah um and we also use it use them for in-game voice like photon voice that is really built on top of unity like that over time became available whereas you know when we first started that wasn't um there and so yeah even for guns yeah a lot of stuff we build custom you know like we build our own like ui library and it's just like a nightmare um it was nightmare to to localize mm-hmm. so that's a big reason actually why you know guns wasn't wasn't localized localization that's a more recent thing too i think developers and publishers they've leaned into it maybe in the last like i wouldn't even say five years probably like closer to three-ish it should have been big years and years ago like obviously japan has a massive gaming culture and there are games that are in yeah. japanese but like universally across the globe it's just something that's lacked which doesn't make a lot of sense just based off how popular the industry is just everywhere and there are a ton of developers in europe and you know south america i mean there are are developers everywhere and it just it was something that never quite made sense to me i understand the market is primarily in north america and that's where your biggest base of customers is but i don't know it just it seems like untapped potential to me i would say not anymore you know just because of where steam is and where all the Mm -hmm. different console platform is because i mean i think over time Steam has gotten 
amazingly good at mm-hmm. supporting all the different t- basically taking steam to every international market yeah. <laughs> just about yeah they really and have it's uh, not just like oh that there's a store right it's basically native payment integration mm-hmm. they've done like so well with that you know with like supporting local currencies supporting local payment systems we before i think so for example if we wanted to publish guns in china mm-hmm. we essentially needed a chinese publisher you had to apply for some gaming license and then you know the publisher really only a local publisher can apply for you and i think at the time we actually looked into it and it's something like oh you know we had to give them some however many lines of source code you know Um, yeah and then the the queue is like really long and then you would be at the mercy of a you know chinese publisher why do they Um, want the source code i have to ask did they explain that like what's the reasoning no i mean i think that just like for a you know, foreign game to be in the Chinese market. I think that mm. was just a requirement. <laughs> huh. That's um, interesting. It was really, yeah, it was really weird. Um, it's like a digital footprint or something. Yeah. Actually, at the the very start of Guns of Icarus, we worked with an Asian publisher, you know, mm. kind of with one eye towards this. The relationship ended up going pretty horribly wrong. But I think just looking at international uh, players and in, in markets, um, I would say that really, it's, I think it's, it's really more evenly distributed. And yes, for us, um, the US uh, in North America is still, you know, the biggest audience. Mm. But yeah, we're seeing a lot of you know, European players. Um, we're seeing a lot of Asian players, Chinese players. The Chinese market's like rapidly, like is exploding. I hear a lot of people saying to me, and even I have started to think it in the last couple of years, the Chinese market will overtake the U.S. market in the next gaming-wise in the next five to ten years. I think. I don't know. Yeah, is I mean, that something you think? In certain respects, it already has, right? Like in mm-hmm. free-to-play, uh, yeah. in mobile, I think it already has actually. Um, yeah. I think it's really, I think it's really more like PC and core gaming, but mm-hmm. I think that's definitely has been growing a lot as well. I think just I think partly Steam, partly console, and you have big game makers and big you know Chinese publisher now that yeah. have a lot of you know distribution power, like Tencent, yep. for example. Um, say, yeah. yeah, so and then you know whatever games that they're making, they push now. They have a reach of like over a billion people. You know, so yeah, it's built yeah. into their market. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I also think that while internet cafe culture is probably still pretty prevalent and pretty big, mm-hmm. I think now it's probably especially after COVID, I think mm-hmm. things definitely shifted, you know, more towards PC gaming as well. So I think that yeah. contributed to the trend. Because and I should know this, but I don't. In China, do they allow Xbox and, P- and PlayStation in there, or is that not a thing? I want to say it's not, but I, I don't know for sure to be honest. You may be right, actually. We'll have to look that yeah, up. Maybe you're right. We're going to dive into Google here for a second. Yeah, it says gaming consoles were banned in mainland China from June 2000 until... Oh, so they are allowed now from 2000 to 2013. Okay. Yeah. It was lifted. Okay, so Xbox One and PS4 were the first ones allowed in the country. So it's newer, but okay. It's this massive market, right? And it's just, it's different. Approaching it is different than pretty much anywhere else in the world, which is unique. For us, it's really just making sure we localize to the best of our ability while maintaining the spirit of of the game, but localizing in a way that, you know, native to the language. Localization is a different animal because it behaves differently 
depending on the language you're doing. So like a word that's really short in English could be like three times longer in Mandarin or Russian or I don't know, French Portuguese or something like that. And all of a sudden you need to adapt because of that. So it's it's very, very different based off of yeah. what you're doing and how you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think Asian languages, uh, East Asian languages tend to be, you know, more concise, more succinct. Mm. So usually, you know, w- when we translate it to, you know, Chinese, for example, mm. Um, length will be shorter, but then, you know, which we'll have to accommodate for all the different fonts. Um, you I know, see. I think, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic and we definitely learn a lot over time. Yeah. I remember when we first started, you know, thinking about localization, we yeah. didn't really know what we were doing. So we had a lot of text baked into the, the graphics, like basically baked into the R assets. Oh no. Um, and later on we're like, oh, well, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> That's stuck there. Um, oh well. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Now I think it's just a lot of it, hopefully with more experience, Mm-hmm. I think there's just a lot of things that we think about at the beginning. So we yeah. think about, you know, you know, marketing at the very beginning. Um, we think about localization. We think about yeah. how to design UI, UX um, closer to the beginning, you know, our, our you know, serve, like multi, multiplayer architecture, you know, at the beginning. So there's just definitely a lot more things that, oh, okay, we're more aware that we try to account for um, earlier in the process. Yeah. Genre, our style. Um, mm-hmm gameplay mechanics will still a lot do a lot of exploration on mm-hmm. so i wouldn't say that we're limited by a specific genre or you know set of mechanics but i think certainly we gravitate um towards multiplayer uh, game ideas that uh, involve or revolve around teamwork and revolve around um people playing together and uh you know we, are, we have done a lot of exploration in you know procedural generation system driven type of gameplay i have to ask for steam and for indie developers a lot of them kind of steer away from multiplayer or at least up to recent years they have right so for you guys to just consistently every game you're doing it from a technical standpoint kind of what was the reasoning behind that one and, and how did you guys approach that like how did you guys tackle that yeah i mean i think multi making multiplayer game is Mm-hmm. Just it's more difficult. Really, all aspects: performance, balance, you know, architecture, you know, queuing, like really everything. Yeah, um, right. it's more difficult. I think it's a little bit easier now, just because they're more ready-made tools um, and in solutions mm-hmm. that basically make you know a lot of things easier. Not every game that we made was a multiplayer, uh, multiplayer mm-hmm. game, but certainly I think it is something kind of at the forefront of what we wanted to do in the very beginning, even before we started selling our first game on steam uh, we mm-hmm. made some multiplayer game for the web for free it's just something that we've always like we're keen to explore and you know interested in but wildminder a lot of the the gameplay experience is in mm-hmm. single player meaning that you can play um with, with ember as well like you can play the game completely in single player and we do yeah. you know design for that right but if we are ever to support multiplayer we mm-hmm. still make that decision I see. It's very um, and not treat it as an add-on because I think that is where the complexity or you know the work becomes very very difficult to the point where maybe at times not possible. What goes into something like that though? So like you're building your queues for your servers, you're you're getting it ready so multiple people can be on this game at the same time. Like for me, I mean, it's it's something that I have no real background in. So like, what goes into creating something that ultimately is a multiplayer experience right so like for people who like play call of duty and they log in they never think about it once right but there's so much going on in that experience i mean there's just layers on layers and layers of things yeah yeah it is i mean i think if we're talking about 
a competitive multiplayer game where mm-hmm. you know it's less like just oh drop in drop out like yeah so with guns of Icarus, for example mm. yeah it's kind of everything it's how we design the like you said um it's how we design kind of the match star experience how we design the lobby um mm-hmm. how we have a crew formation a match formation you know we started as a kind of a serverless uh, system you know almost like a match browsing system Mm. Um, and then we added, uh, you know, matchmaking. Even that decision, really, like, <laughs> was pretty polarizing. It's like, you know, if we, if we're to do something like matchmaking or mm-hmm. matchless, like, we if we wanted to account it for both, it's much better to account it for 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 that in the beginning than yeah. to try to like switch system when you already have a player base. And that is like a pretty massive ordeal and you know yeah certainly with you know server architecture you know just with the, the entire back end of any multiplayer game having like like i said a master server a game server um all these different pcs right they're all trying to play this game in multiplayer they're all running yeah. at different you know they're all running at different paces and speeds uh, they all have different capabilities and stats so how do you balance that out when they're playing together like people always say like pc players have a huge advantage over people who have controllers and consoles when they're playing games together in crossplay is that true or is that you know can um yeah i mean some pcs are like more robust and more powerful you know maybe your fps is higher and, and whatnot um mm-hmm. and then part of it is also latency um so we have to definitely do have to do a lot to account for latency as well yeah um, especially in a in a competitive multiplayer game, so there's definitely like things that we have to account for with physics um, to kind of account for ship positioning, um, projectiles, and, and whatnot to account for lag. So, and then I think part of it is just like yeah, it feeds back into the the matching process. It's like yeah, we will definitely have make consideration to try to pair people up and, and you know account for latency. It's kind of like yeah, it's it's a pretty tricky balancing act because on the one hand we do that, on the other hand we also want to encourage like we don't just have like okay a U.S. East Coast server and mm-hmm. only people on the East Coast could play on that server. You know, we we actually allow like people from different regions to uh, join servers to, to try to. It's almost like an ideal to bring people together. Mm-hmm. But then the practicality is that, yeah, then, you know, we have to maybe consider displaying people's ping in some way or connection in some way. You know, just, so, so there are like actual considerations um, just because, yeah, I mean, if, you, you know, if you're in a match and you have like 300 millisecond ping, it's just mm-hmm. not fun. <laughs> that's, so. that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of like yeah. circling that all the way back with Wildmender, right? You're talking about procedural generation in this game. That's a big element here. So how do you tie that into like this? There's a multiplayer element. And then there's also this procedural generation on top of that. So how do you balance that? How does that work in this game? Talk to me about that for a second. With Wildmender, I guess going back to the beginning, um, mm-hmm. maybe digress for a little bit. It's mm-hmm. created from a game jam uh, yeah. idea that we had. Um, and really in the beginning, it's about exploring what, procedure generation like what maybe what the limitation is what people are doing doing with it and not doing with it and you know what more can we do um so i think one thing is just like yeah even in worlds that are impressively or even like almost infinitesimally large um you know terrains are generated um assets are generated you know all the items in in the game even quests are generated and they're procedurally Mm -hmm. dropped into the game Mm -hmm. Uh, but then generally like for example like if there are trees in the game there are more props than it being actually alive, I guess. So, so I think I think what really what we were exploring in the beginning was how do we make a procedurally generated world feel more alive. It's I think it, it also like coincided with this other thing that another thing that we're trying to do, which is like essentially to create 
the idea of an ecosystem um, mm-hmm. to have environmental variables um, to play a part in like life creation. Um, yes, in particular, plant life creation. So I think those two ideas just kind of collided together. And so you know, very early on, we were kind of experimenting like, oh, okay, building systems one on top of each other and kind of they're interconnected and. You know to have procedural generation of like not just like inanimate objects in the game mm-hmm. but also like you know see if we can actually procedurally grow life <laughs> so you said procedural generation is challenging in a lot of ways right just talk to me about that let's let's expand on that a little bit i guess one one aspect is art you know so i think we definitely had to think about our development quite a bit differently for mm-hmm. for Wamender. um just because like i think the trees go through different stages of growth the way that they grow is driven by the environmental conditions that mm-hmm. are in game, like sunlight, shade, uh, crowding, water, and so on and so forth. Like, you know, I see. Uh, richness of the soil and so on and so forth. So they can potentially take on different shapes. They can potentially take, uh, they have different stages of growth. Um, they have a lot of uh, variety, you know, they have different cultivars, um, mm-hmm. cultivars can crossbreed and so on and so forth. Um, and then so like, we kind of have to look at how to create the plants more, almost at a more micro level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, oh, you know, we have to look at you know, how cylinders fit together, how little like leaves and branches and whatnot fit together into a tree. So it's kind of this like balance. It's like, it's like where, where you know, Alex, our, our you know, lead um, and lead programmer in Ava, you know, our, you know, lead artist, art director, essentially they have to work really closely to cr- essentially craft a tree and yeah. see how, on the one hand, there's procedural generation, how a system is growing a tree. On the other hand, it's like there's still some tuning that has to happen for it to like not go haywire and to, to account for all the edge, edge cases. I don't know, like it, there's just a lot of complexity and actually you know there's like plants grow and you know you can terraform you can mm-hmm. manipulate the terrain manipulate the terrain with all kinds of different tools you can um, channel the water and you have different ways to shape growth and and whatnot and you know then once that's you know built up there are all these different environmental like effects and hazards that can threaten your garden their enemies yeah. yeah and then you know the the land can be transformed so it's kind of like oh the soil the soil change condition and we create different biomes and you know the biomes can shape they can alter uh plant attributes in different ways yeah um so yeah so there's just a lot of complexity there's a lot of different interconnected systems mm-hmm. and then so to, then to create and balance and to tune it all yeah it's a lot of work <laughs> like infinite yeah. possibilities basically with what you're creating it sounds like yeah i mean and, and really the the goal is to allow enough variety and mm-hmm. enough player agency and control so that they can really create something that makes it feel like it's their own you know mm-hmm. so it's like you're, you're growing an actual garden and maybe like you know you're doing forest management and mm-hmm. it's yours so i think in, there's enough complexity and there's enough like variety to have players to create something that they can identify with mm-hmm. um, that they feel like it's their own then i feel like it just takes on a different whole new um set of meanings um and like just maybe just to digress a little bit more like once in alpha players get their hands on the game you know they grow their garden and the garden start to grow and start to get big like it's kind of interesting how they treat life that they actually created from inception inception Mm -hmm. like over some you know 10 20 however many hours of gameplay like i don't really see players chop down trees just indiscriminately in, in their own garden and 
like maybe you know some players they will like have a grove that that they can like cut down and replant and you know grow for wood and whatnot yeah. right but like i don't see players just like oh i'm just gonna cut this tree down and they just wreck it yeah and, yeah and so i think that's kind of satisfying but i think that really that's kind of what everything that we do is for you know mm-hmm. it's it's for that vision i would imagine if you're doing something like that you'd be invested in what you're creating you wouldn't want to wreck it you know the, the original vision it's also what, like kind of the original like signpost is kind of like okay we want to have a survival experience as well where we have a world we have an open world and we you know we wanted to have a survival experience and really that's kind of the inspiration is coming from it's like hey in all these like adventure you know action adventure or open world survival game yeah however much procedural generation there is things are not necessarily like feeling totally alive meaning that like yeah um, you gotta go get like water you, come back whatever yeah, you know you, you basically just like okay you, the trees you cut down there are mm-hmm. like you know resources that you mine maybe you know harness the resources to go fight bosses and whatnot i think with wellmender we really wanted to bring things together to create an experience where you know in order for you to grow your quote-unquote base you actually have to give back to the land and the more you give back to the land the more you can actually grow your base and to expand your world and to actually do more in the world. And I think that's something that we've always been fascinated by. So I think there's enough freedom in the game to allow like different play styles and for people to do different things. With this game specifically, then you'd mentioned the side quests are procedurally generated as well. With that aspect of it, is there like an expansive story in this game or is it just kind of these like procedurally generated more randomized quests? There's both. Um, So there are more like randomized side things it's like you know on replay like you so for example if you create a randomized map they can be in whatever different locations um so it would be different each time you play biome locations and sometimes like oh you know where things are dropped where things are happening could be different mm-hmm. uh, but there is a through line in main quests and that has some degree of you know linearity to it but again you know it's not like anything is hard locked yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could explore like biomes farther out, but it would just be a lot harder um, because the different biomes have different environmental uh, uh, challenges. Well, that does bring up a point, though, with the difficulty in this game, right? I hear a lot of people when they talk about indie games, they say indie games are typically more difficult than AAA, right? Because they're games made by game developers a lot of the time. So yeah. is that something you guys took into account with this game? Is it something like you have a leveling system where you can do like easy, medium, hard? I know that's not easy, especially not with procedural generation. But but like how yeah. does how do you work that into this game? We do tend to balance a little bit on the less difficult side over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it also depends like difficulty is really hard to measure because it's subjective to players. You know, for someone who's experienced with playing open world survival games, Wellmender will probably be a little bit more on the moderate side. The combat is probably a little bit more moderate than some of the more hardcore combat oriented yeah. experiences. But then, you know, the exploration and kind of the cultivation aspect may mm-hmm. not be as definitely more involved because it has a little bit more of a base building dimension that's probably a little bit more involved um mm-hmm. and there definitely is a portion of the players who are just into cultivation they just mm-hmm. want to farm <laughs> yeah and they can do that as well really the difficulty comes the more you go into the, the deeper you go into the world so you could just like farm like a lot and that in, in effect like when you do it does make your adventuring easier so it's kind of this like reinforcing cycles of like you know exploration and cultivation 
you know, people will open up the game and they mm-hmm. look at the difficulty settings. Um, it's pretty involved, you know. So there are different game modes that you can challenge. So it's you know you kind of almost have the gardening mode where like you know it's kind of the casual mode where there's still mm-hmm. enemies but they're very fairly like easy to handle. I see. Um, you're way more powerful. Like water loss is significantly like less, and you know so on. Um, and then there's kind of the, the default mode, and there's a, a mode that we call there's a, there's a, a you know the hard mode and a iron child mode, where we introduce permadeath. Yeah, so there, there's just different ways for people to play the game and to mm-hmm. to kind of challenge themselves. So there there are already diff- different preset difficulty settings, mm-hmm. um, but we go like quite a bit further. You know, we allow players to turn off different environmental effects. You guys are based out of New York City doing this, right? This yeah. is a very much it's like a garden simulator mixed with a bunch of different elements but it's something that when you told me that i was a little bit surprised i think other people would see this game and they would be like i wouldn't expect that talk to me about right a new york city developer who wants to make a gardening simulator like where people are just like that's like the one of the biggest cities in the country like that that's shocking so talk to me about that thought process there yeah i mean just in terms of like i think that really is a question of like how do we survive in new york right like (laughs) so i think new york is expensive but i guess we're in and around new york so new york is not all Manhattan. um Mm -hmm. so it's not all like the most expensive neighborhood certainly like you know as a city in general is very expensive um but you know right now with us you know there you know we have um teammates who live um or quote-unquote upstate we're around new york and we try to meet up um but you know we don't mm-hmm. you know live in the most expensive you know parts of the city <laughs> um, yeah. What's the so gaming culture like in one. New York City, right? I mean, it's you would think it's this large city, there's a bunch of people there. I'm not going to say I would assume, but cities like LA, they have a pretty decent gaming culture. They have developers there, you have events, you know. It's almost like your community is really well established, which helps developers because then they can talk to each other. You had mentioned, you know, you talk to influencers. Obviously, I'm sure that area is a draw for influencers so you have a better way of interacting with them potentially things of that nature like how does that work for you with that community and that that just overall i guess environment for gaming i think maybe because of how you know expensive it is the indie community is sort of you know waxes and wanes um like there's definitely an indie scene and i think i think a lot of it revolves around nyu so like nyu game center and you know something that we're involved in as well just you know, helping, sometimes advising and whatnot. Um, I think that is certainly, you know, one hub. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people who come out of the program, you know, they stayed um, and they're continuing to make uh, make games, which is really awesome. Uh, so there, there are some like hubs, uh, indie hubs, uh, indie gaming hubs um, yeah. in the city. Um, but probably, I mean, maybe it's not the biggest gaming hub that people would imagine it is interesting because i think where you are in the world means less now than it ever has from a development standpoint just because of the tools available we're talking through discord right now you know so that location base doesn't matter as much as it did you know five ten years ago so it's just interesting because you see countries like you know saudi arabia i just saw you a story i read about how they're pumping like 32 billion into their gaming industry right now and like china's pumping billions and europe has grant programs and all 
all these different things that they're trying to like really push it, which makes sense because like after CD Projekt Red brought so much money into its economy, like yeah. maybe it's more of a Central Europe thing, I, and and even like moving now into the Middle East thing, but. They're really pushing gaming as an industry that can support their economy and thereby it impacts their environment, yeah. it impacts their, you know, their culture, it impacts, I mean, everything really, their communities. So it, it becomes much more integrated over time. Even Canada, we have friends mm-hmm. in Canada that are getting like pretty large sums of money in grants, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Good for them. Um, not as great for us, but good for them. And it's something that I definitely wish that we have more so, like a lot more so. That that aspect is really lacking in the U.S. I think. Yeah, it, it is there, but you know, it's not either well like advertised. Um, it's yeah. not well taken advantage of, but it's just not really as robust. So I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the this kind of some, sometimes the support um, that you know European developers get, um, you know, Canadian developers get, Asian developers mm. get. It's yeah, it's pretty envious. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So okay, you're in New York City. For me personally, I see the gaming industry has been it used to market to a very specific demographic, right? And I think recently over the last couple of years that has started to evolve and expand. I think coming from New York City, it's a very diverse culture there. Um, There's a lot of diversity within that. Taking that experience, looking at the gaming industry now, you've been in the industry for about a decade at this point, right? So looking at like what the market was then, who the developers were then, and then looking at where it is now versus like a decade from now. Can you kind of talk about diversity in the industry, how it impacts gaming, like how it impacts the stories that are being told, how it impacts the characters, and just like walk me through that journey from then to now. I think that could there be more diversity? Absolutely. Meaning that, so I think one, one of the things that that is sort of kind of like almost passively exclusionary, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for an indie developer who don't have, who doesn't have money to travel to some place like GDC, um, to travel to a, a con like GDC, it's cost prohibitive unless they get some sponsorship, you know? Yeah. And for us to travel to GDC and to attend the con, it's way easier. And so I think there is that aspect to it, right? So are there barriers? Yes, there's still barriers that needs to be broken down. But I do think that because there is more of a movement over the last decade for, you know, indie development in internationally. Like you're seeing like Taiwanese developers, for example, Chinese, like, you know, mainland Chinese developers, Japanese developers, like anywhere, like doing amazing things. That's authentically local to their culture, to their heritage, to their art and storytelling. It's actually pretty awesome. So like I... Um, one example would be, um, so I was, you know, working with um, and kind of helping these devs, um, you know, in Taiwan that created this horror game um, yeah. called, I don't know if you heard, like called Detention. And they did phenomenally well and blew up. Um, it's awesome. And the story is amazing. It's a great story. And it's, it, but it touches on a lot of these, like, I guess, really politically sensitive topics that were tabooed in the past in Taiwan because, yeah. um, you know, Taiwan had martial law, people's freedom or politically oppressed, um, you know, dissidents mm-hmm. were, you know, disappear in, in, you know, into the night. Um, and, yeah. you know, so there was that aspect of Taiwanese history. And, you know, they, were, they used a lot of like, you know, art themes that are very Taiwanese and Chinese um, in theme. Like it, it created this a very authentic experience, I think. Um, it's yeah. something very different in horror. Um, the story is actually pretty moving, um, you know, 
about like you know family lost um you know death and and whatnot i think the barrier to development is less now so i, I do think that while there's a lot of call it competition but competition to like oh there's just a lot of proliferation of games out there mm-hmm. there are people doing really cool things amazing things that are more local or indigenous to their culture their you know history and art and storytelling that we're seeing like now more and more so and i think that's pretty that's pretty awesome looking at the industry as a whole i think a decade ago i would look at it almost this way right where i think triple a games they're forced to play it a little bit safer because they're catering to a larger market and so the change is coming but it's coming more gradually to them i think indie games the sky's the limit and it has expanded rapidly in the last couple years and there's so many there's so many incredible stories and there's so much diversity and like just change and there's so many different things in there that really gives you perspective as a player and AAA, I think they still kind of have to play it safer because ultimately if they change too aggressively, then it could hit their bottom line. And that means they're losing money on their titles, which is yeah. unfortunate, but I think that's ultimately how they have to play it. But with yeah. new developers, new coders, new marketers, even just new generations playing games, I think that's inevitably going to change as well in the next couple of years too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, on, on the one hand, for us, every game is about survival, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's no different. But I do think that, yes, in AAA, there is more, more of like, oh, this, you know, game doesn't hit. It's, you know, company's bottom line. There's more management oversight. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, how would like how much money would it make? They do a lot of financial modeling and forecasting. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think that drives decisions. Whereas I feel like for us, yes, we know that every time we release something, we're mm-hmm. taking a risk and maybe even an existential risk. Well, certainly as a studio. Um, mm-hmm. But we're kind of willing to take that risk anyway, because mm-hmm. it's part of our DNA. It's like why we do what we do. Um, it's really more what can we do that's new and different that interests us. For I a lot would of completely people. agree. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. I think the identity of indie game developers has been that they can take that creative freedom and they can create yeah. interesting, unique products based off their experiences and stuff like that. So, yeah, for sure. And I don't think that will ever change. I think that's always going to be how it is. Yeah, because otherwise we could just do something else or try to go work for a bigger studio, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. You could just go and work for AAA at that point, which they're buying up small studios to get the uh, to get developers at this point. So you never know someday, right? That, that, yeah. yeah, that is true. So with that in mind, actually, we're talking about AAA developers moving into publishers of games themselves, right? You have a publisher mm-hmm. on this game. You've worked with publishers in the past. You've had good relationships. You've had bad relationships. Talk to me about the stigmas that some publishers have gotten over the years, the good, the bad, all of that stuff. Let's, let's dive into that one really quick. For us, it's just, you know, we have, I guess, call it a partner now. So essentially we're working with, you know, another entity, another party. Um, so hopefully, you know, we um, find ways to accentuate all the positives and, and to try to collaborate and find ways to, to solve problems collectively. But yeah. it is that kind of collaboration, the external collaboration that sometimes can create friction just because they're, they, they have a different bureaucracy, a different system, <clears throat> you know, a different way of doing things, different way of getting approval, different ways to sign off, different ways to bring like different constituencies into a process or a decision-making process, right? So I think, I think it's just, you know, we have a very different culture. We move at certain speeds and hopefully it's like as fast as possible, right? And yeah. Yeah, so right. we were very, very flat in hierarchy. Um, we almost don't have any. The cultural fit is, you know, obviously kind of a, it's always a concern between working between entities. I think with, with publishing, it's really like how many games did they sign? How many games could they devote their attention to? Like really devote their attention to? 
And I think some publishers do sign a bunch of stuff and just see what is yeah, hit they want to see if know, one lands. Yep. Yeah. So it's more yeah. like quantity driven. I think so. Then you know, it's really more about the process and more more about the methodology and the effort. Mm-hmm. And so you know, for us, is looking at would a publisher be able to spend the effort, have the right mentality, willing to take risks to. Um, have the process mm-hmm. irrespective of how you know the result goes just because okay fine they try something it doesn't work if if, if, if it means that okay they'll never try something again then mm-hmm. okay that that's one thing if if it doesn't deter them to try stuff i think that's obviously for us a, a much more of a positive um so it's kind of looking for that type of dynamic um i see so like you would look you would look at it based on their turnaround, their responsiveness, the lo- the amount of projects they have in that moment that they're kind of catering to and keying in on and then yeah. how they approach that Kickstarter and the funding. Definitely. And sometimes it's just really the connection the people with the people. I was going to say, you had mentioned earlier on that you had a, a slightly shaky relationship with a publisher when you're going to the Asian market. Can you talk about that or is that something you want to steer away from? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, that's it's a long time ago. Um, so it's it was a case where there are different milestones that they were investing uh, capital in the game. They will have publishing rights, n- not so different from like a publishing deal. Now, the, really, what it comes down to was you know IP, and essentially as a relationship went sour. I mean, how how went sour is also like creative control, where they were just exerting more and more creative control, like the way that they review milestone, like it becomes way more and more arbitrary, finally to the point where it's like, okay, they want to discontinue the project for almost arbitrary reasons, which, you know, it's not even for milestone fail, it's more for like qualitative you know, subjective things that they thought maybe were potentially missing, but mm-hmm. that weren't that were not slated to happen until much later on, until like alpha. Yeah, and it's because the marketing has some like requests. That's almost an edict. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, why don't in prototyping phase, why don't we have a final UI? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know, things like that. That's, that's just awesome, basically yeah. not you know unworkable, right? Yeah. Um. So they're pushing a lot of these like changes down our throats and threatening to you know withhold funding and things like that mm. um so things finally came to a head and so we finally decided to try to exit out of the deal and so there was a lot of like they certainly made a lot of threats you know at exit so luckily you know we still retain our ip mm. um which is like paramount also luckily you know we had a, an exit where we can actually walk away because um yeah. and we didn't really litigate but you know we just kind of talked it out at least me and their ceo like we kind of worked it out and we were able to exit luckily thankfully but certainly before we exited you know their cto or head of publishing were making threats such as hey you know what if we just copy rippy off what if we just like copy your game what do you think which which has it has <laughs> happened in the industry to be honest so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's something as, as as blatant you know yeah, as yeah, that yeah. It out loud and just i mean threw that's it out, wild to actually know. say that yeah <laughs> I mean, um that was like well it's highly illegal and unethical but yeah you know <laughs> right word of mouth i'd imagine saying something like that you told anybody nobody would want to work with that publisher anymore after hearing something like that so i can't i don't yeah. know what the reasoning would be to say something like that i think they were feeling because they feel like they're big and mm-hmm. I think they were predatory um, mm-hmm. we, we end up like talking I ended up talking to some other developers that uh, you know at least a couple other developers who work with them yeah. you know they were generally very predatory and I think that definitely kind of colored our view on publishers um, at least for a long while then the industry changed and so we decided to 
to get publishing another book. Yeah, I mean, I think I think now there there's certainly really good publishers out there for sure doing great things. And you know, in recent our years, publisher that we're working with, I think, is one of them. You're in the middle of 2023 right now. What does the roadmap for this game look like? I guess just kind of talk to me about your launch, what you have planned for it, and then the post-launch yeah. after that, moving to the end of 2023. Yeah. So post-launch, we certainly have you know a number of ideas that are slated that are you know just different types of content you know so we're thinking of like different quest lines different zone content um but also something to play more with like you know the environment and there's also like things that we have always wanted to do on the tool side or on the gardening side Mm -hmm. um so more craftable items that could help shape help terraform um yeah so yeah there's like a lot of ideas actually so i think i think once we get to release um it's just about prioritizing them and you also have to take player feedback into consideration as well um there will be fixes for sure so we don't we're not doing early access but i think just with any of these really we always anticipate to fix stuff we always anticipate to optimize stuff like i don't ever think that if we release a game it's done you know i always look at it as kind of a continuous improvement thing years after guns of Icarus, we were still doing stuff with it and i think it's just kind of nature development we were always anticipating to to support it like launch is just sort of a a milestone right like you we, yes we were we obviously were expecting and we'll anticipate to get the most visibility and sales uh yeah. from launch mm-hmm. but then it really is just if things go well it's really just one milestone i have to ask this is your seventh game right now is there already plans for game eight right now yep uh, that's exciting is that like yeah. as has anything happened yet or you just kind of you're thinking about it yeah yeah no um we have already it's already in prototype um usually wow. like when we are in full like production mode for one mm-hmm. project uh yeah. we'll have something in the background that we as a team would have like you know sort of greenlit ourselves and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. we'll be working in the background this time is actually we're actually a little bit behind where we want to be as far as the development of our new game Mm-hmm. Um, I think just because how involved Wildmender was. But yeah, we, we uh, have started prototyping next project already. That's going to be exciting. That's really, that's just next project. Really I can't wait to see it. I can't wait. 